0: Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is Lila Mansour. Lila is a social activist and recently just completed her uh, bachelor's degree in economics at the University of Northern British Columbia. Uh, Lila is preparing to go to law school and she she explains sort of why she decided to do uh, economics before going into law school. So that's that's a cool story there. And uh, what she's very passionate about is social justice anti-racism uh understanding why people think the way that they do and trying to introduce educational uh legislative reforms to protect people coming here from all over the world she's also uh very passionate about the middle east is a practicing muslim woman and uh shares a little bit about that and and uh demystifies some of that I mean there's a lot of cultural assumptions that uh, somebody who's not a member of that community might make and she's uh, a a person who prides herself on being somebody to to educate uh, about her culture because not everybody uh, should be expected to educate on their on their culture educate others on their culture Uh, however she is somebody who you know that's something that she's she's very proud to do to to answer questions so and doing it in, in you know in a very respectful way so I'm I'm'm I'm so thankful that we we're able to have her on the show today and there's so much that she has to share with us I hope you enjoy if you like this episode please be sure to drop us a line our email is Rob's probably wrong at gmail.com thank you for listening Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind, and you're listening to "I'm Probably Wrong About Everything." All right, here we go. We got Lila Mansour with us. Thank you so much, um, Lila. Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you're. you're I've seen that you're, you're incredibly passionate about law and the protection of everyone, you know, people who come here from Canada, people who are citizens and social activism. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're incredibly passionate and a wonderful example of how to participate in your community. Um, What, what other things are you, are you, are you about that, that can help listeners understand?
1: Thank you so much, Robert. That was was such a humbling introduction. Um, Thank you. Uh, I'm very passionate about so many things. I guess just to begin with a little bit of background about myself, I just graduated from the University of Northern British Columbia. So I'm currently, thank you. So I'm currently residing in Prince George, British Columbia on the unceded territory of the Plateletonay. So up in the north of British Columbia where it gets very cold in the winter. And so I, I graduated in, in economics, and my plan always was to go to law school. I had a passion from a young, quite a young age, I've got to say 12 or 13, where I did consider the law as a potential career. In addition to other things, I thought of mm-hmm. orthodontics and dentistry, and I thought of so many different things. And I always said, no, my passion is in politics and law. And a lot of people say, "Well, why did you go into economics?" And I said, "Well, I have a passion for math and political science." And I said, "The balance there is, is economics." And uh, I always remember the day where I, I remember remember in high school looking up what what degree does Stephen Harper have because I want to have whatever he has. And I remember in on Wikipedia, and it was like he has economics. And I said, "Yes, I'm going to get a degree in economics so I can debate people like him and understand, you know, where they're coming from." Of course, because I lean more left politically. Right. And and that was kind of the path. And I've enjoyed my degree very much. I uh, love the mathematical side. I wish I could have learned more about, you know, national economics and how it works. But that's just how it is in, in the program that I was in. And uh, I'm very proud to say that I will be attending law school at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law yeah, at Ryerson Congratulations. University. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That will begin this fall. And so I'm hoping my goal and my passion and my life goal is to support newcomers, people from marginalized communities to access the law. People say, well, what type of law do you want to specialize in? And I said, I want to specialize in in the one that people in need need the most, whether it will end up being family law uh, or poverty law or wills and estates are specializing in a few. People say, well, how about human rights? And I said, human rights typically is a more on an international scale and I wanna help people locally and just support them because a lot of people are having difficulties, difficulties accessing people who either look like them, speak similar language. And so I'm I'm very passionate about access to justice. And so, like you said, why am I so passionate about access to justice? I just, I see a lot of people struggling, a lot of people making mistakes. Uh, of course, the justice system costs a lot, and the people who, of course, are interacting with the justice system themselves take on shoulder many burdens, including financial burdens, when it comes to uh, achieving justice, whatever the reason may be. And so I hope to help people through through that, and I do volunteering with an organization in Vancouver. Uh Justice Education Society, and I support them through their programs to reach newcomers, as well as another organization, particularly for Arabic-speaking newcomers, called Cousins Network, and we do a lot of outreach, uh, and I help support some of the outreach with the community, whether it's legal support or other general information to help newcomers. Wow.
0: So, a a question I love asking people is uh, Mark Twain, who's got so many amazing aphorisms, one of the ones he said is the most important day in a person. The, the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born, and the day they they uh, understand the reason why their purpose. So, do you remember? Like, have you always been uh, of this mindset of wanting to help others, or was there a moment somebody helped you in need that you're like, okay, this is what I want.
1: That's a, that's a good question. I <clears throat> If I had to pinpoint one day, I don't think I can tell you one day in exact, but I guess I'll tell you something that I guess sparked something for me at a young age and why I really also like politics in addition to law. I remember one day, I think probably my dad was docking, watching a documentary on 9-11. I was probably around eight or nine years old at the, at the time. And I had finally come to, re- it was, you know, it was funny because between 2000 and 2010, I felt people talked a lot about, um, you know, 9-11, of course, after it occurred in 2001, people thinking about conspiracy theories, people discussing how it could have happened, how it was related to the terrorist groups in the United, in the, in the Middle East and i remember watching that documentary and it f- and finally i think i think my mom told me that you know it's such a big event for us as as muslims because it was people who claimed to be muslims who committed the attacks and at that point i realized oh that's why people dislike muslims so much i think people it was a lot more common for people to use the term terrorist back around 2010 i'm talking 2009 you know, it was much more common it, it was, yeah, it was something. And so I remember just realizing, wow, people are af- would be afraid of, you know, people of my my background. My mom at the time, she wore the hijab. I, I was young then, so I didn't wear it yet. But I was like, wow, I want to change that. And because I'm an American citizen by birth, I remember saying, I want to become the president of the United States. And I want to change that. I want to change the way that people s- see Muslims and so on. And I remember people always, you know, compliment my smile. And I always say, when did I start smiling so much? And I said, I think that I just wanted to be such a positive person so that when people saw me as a Muslim woman, they weren't ever afraid. They never saw me as a terrorist or somebody who was ever a threat. Uh, Thankfully, I think that's kind of changed. I think people, when they see people who wear the hijab or people from overseas or with darker skin or who look different. I think they look at us, you know, generally as uneducated um, Mm. or backwards or so on and so forth. So I think this idea of of terrorists, thankfully, has, I think, in my opinion, died down. Um, And I just, this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about, as being as much as I can a a role model for other young Muslims. Uh, because I grew up in a community where there weren't very many Muslims and I didn't have anybody to look up to. But at the same time, I want to show, you know, be an ambassador for my faith, for my background, and show people that just because I look different or behave in a slightly different way or have different beliefs, that I can contribute just as much to society. And I and I want to be in Canada just as much as you and contribute. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, I, I would argue that perhaps you you you're doing more than than the average person right i mean a lot of people take for granted the the privileges that they're given um which is which is why i've always had such a fascination with why people get offended by terms such as white privilege um you know why why that they're like what do you mean you know that and it's like well it's not necessarily it's not meant to be a slur right it's just a truth it's a truism that because of you want you you don't always know what privileges you have until you're in a situation that mm-hmm. where you're like, "Oh, right, okay, so that gives me an advantage because that's what a privilege is. So what you want to do is to give back in a way that you can make other people, oh, Thomas, hello, we just had somebody message us on here to give back in a way that other people can sort of get themselves out of a situation or or to to be educated in the matters because when somebody comes here from another country, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, so I like to provide illustrations. So my daughter, we're trying to sign her up for uh, for swimming lessons and everything shut down. So you have to go online and try and book these these swimming times. And it was like, I was trying to read Greek, right? I couldn't figure this out to save my life. And then I started to think, imagine if I came to this country only knowing another language and everything is in English, and I'm trying to sign up for some sort of a um, bursary or something, mm-hmm. it's just like, man, that would be frustrating, because you would feel so lost.
1: Oh, yeah, and I can I, tell you a quick story with the yeah. problem that I, with the legal kind of issue that I had to kind of help resolve. There was a family, they had signed to extend their rental agreement because they need, because they had a notice of eviction and they couldn't find a place in time. And of course, if you get a notice of eviction, you get a free month typically because your landlord is evicting you for some specific reason. And then they had four months to find a new place. This was during COVID back in the fall and they couldn't find a place in time. I think they were set to move into their new place in the new year, but that was of course way past the four months. I think maybe five and a half months, um, when, since the eviction notice had been issued and then they had signed to extend the agreement and they didn't realize, of course, um, because that's of course all in the fine print. A lot of legal stuff is in the fine print. They, their English isn't very good and they didn't realize that they had to pay for those. They were not, they were forfeiting that free month. Um, and of course they went and they complained to the, um, tribunal and they didn't get anything out of it and yeah there's there's lots of stories like this where people are signing things legal documents the basic necessities whether it's rent or food or job and they just don't they don't realize and and i i kind of blame the government they don't um encourage these things to be you know in Mm -hmm. in big and bold they they sit all in the fine print
0: what I, I also think that our consciousness around our consciousness of our conscientiousness has really sort of, I mean, it's not where it needs to be, obviously, but it's only in the last few years that we've started to almost look at it from a, um, dare I say, like a decolonized lens, like from, from a lens of, for example, history traditionally was written by whoever won, you know, that sort of expression. But now Mm -hmm. we're looking at, at, you know, we're, we're trying to implement eclectic perspectives because we realize that different perspectives create a greater understanding.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that that's only really started to take over in the last few years. But for example, you, you mentioned Stephen Harper. Um, there was a guy who really just wanted to keep it in a myopic sort of monocultural lens and made it quite difficult for people to, again, like you say, understand their rights. Mm-hmm. as citizens yeah so would you say that the change has been in the last few years or or is it has this been a super long drawn out process that's nowhere where it needs to be
1: i think things are slowly improving um of course there's more people like me who want to support people we're having difficulties where we're more willing to have this conversation as a society to discuss the shortcomings where there's gaps there's a lot more programs and grants to support people and Lincoln, Lincoln Alexander School of Law for example it's a new law school and they're very much focused and they built the entire institution on trying to enhance social justice and choosing students and individuals from whether it's disadvantaged backgrounds marginalized backgrounds and building a institution that supports social justice, social in, and you know innovation within the justice system to act to reach more people, and I, we're seeing that more and more. It's of course slow, and I know we were talking a little bit before about corporate culture. Corporate culture is very difficult to change, and I do blame a lot of corporate culture on what we do see that, you know, certain stereotypes that continue to be perpetuated the way that certain individuals are treated. Um, And so, yeah, there's still a lot of, bureaucratic issues corporate issues that continue to persist and improvement is is slow but it's it's coming along and i'm excited when i see some you know, institutions and organizations and there are amazing businesses out there that are trying to change um there are politicians that want to look at politics differently and so i do get excited
0: well and, and oh, man so many good bits there um Corporate culture, and uh, you know, I've heard it said that it's it's white supremacist culture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, to some extent, to to some extent, and yeah, it, it can be difficult, especially when you know we're having discussions about hiring people of color and you know we do see organizations hiring people of color but are they in the highest yes. positions are they in the managerial roles are they the ones making the decisions and are they being heard because some days i have hit, you know hit a wall where i felt like my you know i'm trying to support a particular community and i don't feel like i'm being heard in the needs of the community so it's it's tricky and
0: and and, and like you know so many great points there again because uh have you have you I had a chance to check out this book. See, I told you no. I tried to use my pretentious <laughs> bookshelf. So this book is amazing, called the yeah. Diversity, Inc. by Pamela uh, Newkirk. And uh, I don't get any proceeds from this. I, I had to buy that book with my own money. But <laughs> what she's talking about is how diversity, you know, it, it, it makes it look like they're being super inclusive. But you look up the top 10 richest people of the world, they're all white
1: right right not
0: not saying that we need to you know like uh you know kill them all or anything like that that's not what i'm Mm -hmm, saying mm -hmm, but i'm just mm -hmm. saying what is real representation right when i when i watch every commercial and there's you know every other commercial has has uh um inclusive representation sort of things like you know uh same-sex marriage which i'm Mm -hmm. I'm for all these things people have seen those ads yeah For all of these things. Mm -hmm. But in terms of ownership and representation in the managerial aspects, how inclusive is that really?
1: Yeah. And that's a, just that's a great means. question. It's a lot, of, and I talk about this a lot tokenism when I'm having this discussion. A lot of it is tokenism. It's about checking a box, filling a position, making sure that you look a certain way. When in reality, these individuals are not affecting decision making or changing the system, and the people who currently control the system aren't actively trying to change or improve it. And yeah, I do fear I do fear tokenism a lot when it comes to whether it's you know corporations or organizations, uh, or even government. I you know, it's very, very we have to be careful of tokenism because it just it doesn't it doesn't help anybody.
0: And, and and I don't know if we said this while we were recording, but there's this idea of, um, what did, what did I describe it as? Cultural sort of sharing or whatever, that yes. the more inclusive an environment is, it actually makes it for like a, a better functioning system. And and people talk all the time about a meritocracy, which mm-hmm. I, I'm for, but how will you get a true meritocracy if like, you can't have that with tokenism. And I think mm-hmm. that people say things like, well, you should just have the best person for the job, but we all know that, you know, when people are reading resumes, oh, I can't say that name. I'm going to put that on the right pile. Mm-hmm. There's that mm-hmm. piece. So how can you have a meritocracy without there being some sort of legislation that, that makes things more inclusive? And I don't yeah. know if, if that's there yet either.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's, yes, legislation has been slow. And I always I'm always hesitant of quotas because I also consider that another form of tokenism where we're saying, oh, we need to have 15% and then you know we find that that is that you know 15%. either a lot of the work gets dumped on them um, or they're trying mm-hmm. to just find somebody just to fill the spot. And so sometimes that's that's an issue. Uh, also, I, I know a lot of organizations are trying to form equity and diversity parts or like an office and then they they forget that sometimes these people feel overburdened um, when you're trying to look at racism and they're trying to solve the the problem because it's I mean no individual can solve racism within an organization on their own and sometimes I feel like some of those um, offices whether it's an equity and diversity office or some, t- some sort of equity office they, they'll they hire one or two people and these people get overburdened and I've actually f- I've, I've found more and more as I have these conversations with people that it's actually exhausting to have to continue to justify yourself to speak for yourself to stand up for yourself or you feel you're not represented enough and you have to always go this like extra mile that other people don't have to and you do feel some days this sense of uh, exhaustion when others don't understand you sometimes i'm for for some of my um some of the volunteer that I do, um, you know, people often don't understand that, you know, when you're dealing with people from different community than what you're used to, you have to put in a lot more effort to deal with people within those community. It's a lot more time consuming and others don't always understand that.
0: Well, have you ever heard of uh, Daryl? I mean, this might be a bit of a, a tangent here and so I'm just going to read That's okay. comment that Thomas gave us. Um, or people coming from other countries and they have to jump through all these hoops to come to a doctor or nurse when they already, when they were right. So he's talking mm-hmm. about education. Yeah. So actually just to start of sorry, piggyback off of what Thomas is saying is I worked at Safeway and uh-huh. I, you know, I, I, I would uh, do all the shelving and the stocking and stuff. And there was a security guard there and I was doing this while I was in, in school and I, I was studying for a biology test and there's a security guard in the break room with me, and he's uh, he was from Iran, and he was explaining all because I was like homeostasis. I don't know, like, <laughs> and he's explaining it to me in like the easiest way, because uh, it takes. I have a thick skull; it takes me a while to figure things out. <laughs> Anyways, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool, man! How did you know all this?" He's like, "Oh, well, mm-hmm. in Iran, I'm I'm a I was a nuclear physicist, but here I'm a c- security guard." I was like, "Holy smokes!" Wow. Right? Like, so he had to change all his credentials it it just became so like he came here with his family how is he going to update his courses Mm -hmm. i mean and that's a huge problem right because we have these highly educated people in high standing in in their country and then they come here and it doesn't like how how do we solve that issue
1: yeah I, i i think that there's two parts to this issue Mm-hmm. Um firstly of course we all we've all heard of that example where there is a taxi driver who's a doctor. That's a common example that's get, that gets pulled up um when we're talking about this problem. And, uh, and so the first part is is just having additional support. So There's a lot of people that do reach out to me and say, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, what do I do to to upgrade my skills here in Canada? And and a lot of time I just I don't have an answer. I said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to look into that yourself because I, I First of all, I've never had to go through that process, but second of all, it's actually a very tiring and exhaustive process as an individual. It's not something I could Google and, and give you an answer in 20 minutes. It depends on your credentials. And I think that the government needs to, I think that the government could solve a lot of these problems by, um, you know, having a lot more translated materials. This is something that I've actually faced particularly during COVID-19 when I'm trying to support people in Arabic. And I'm like, why are they, like you brought many refugees, you know that there are lots of newcomers from the Arab world who speak Arabic. Why isn't there more translated materials? It just seems like common sense. And what's even more surprising is I find that the translation is also off, which is very shocking because they say, you know, we hire a third party to do translation for us. And I said, well, then why is the translation incorrect? There are people who are, you know, there are people who are willing to do this. Uh, so that's a, that's one thing I would probably suggest is the government just provide more resources to help people and make the process a little bit easier for these individuals, whether it's providing, you know, upgrading for their English. And a lot of people actually come with um, with strong English skills and they just, you know, need the certification. And so I think it's up to the government to make the decision to be able to support people, to get their licensing quicker and faster, upgrade their skills, whatever is needed for them to be able to practice here in Canada. Secondly, I would say the other side of the, the story is look at the countries that they're coming from and the issues that continue to persist that are a result uh, of, of Western nations meddling in things within those regions, whether we're looking at the Middle East or Africa. Why are people wanting t- to leave there? They know that there's no opportunity. Um, there's either war. A lot of different issues that we know either are a result of Western, ang- Western actions you know, long-standing impacts of colonialism, etc., and so those are kind of the two sides of the of of the coin that governments in the West who are receiving these newcomers um, need to support them in, in adapting to their new country, but also, uh, you know, st- stop meddling and and causing conflict elsewhere.
0: And and, and that's such a big like whew, the stop meddling piece. Mm-hmm. It's almost like. Uh, here, here here I go way off on a tangent again. Thank yep. you for your patience <laughs> with me. But the Roman no, Empire, the, the Roman Empire, the reason it's one of the many reasons, which there I have I, I see parallels between the fall of the Roman Empire and another empire, which I will not name. Uh, but you know, you can read between the lines there. It it as long as an expanding empire is easier to upkeep than a stable empire. Mm-hmm. And going back to your meddling piece, as long as Western powers keep kind of mucking about in other people's business, mm-hmm. keep their economy going.
1: Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: In, in, a, in in a very strange way. I mean, we only need to look at the war in Iraq to understand that, you know, Saddam Hussein was like anti-religious, right? He mm-hmm. would have nothing to do with Muslim extremists. Yeah. Um, you know, just given what he did during the Gulf War, right, yet they went in there thinking that there was weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) What, 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 like, you know, you can't, and right when they did that, the world was like, okay, like, you're not even trying to hide it anymore,
1: whereas
0: before in the 80s in the Cold War, they were able to hide things under the guise of the fear of communism, but nowadays things are getting harder to hide, but you have to kind of maintain it, and if we're just to stop and kind of, you know, focus on ourselves, there's going to be great difficulties there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The profit off of fear, right? They profit and um, politicians thrive off of that fear.
0: Well, what, what, like xenophobia is the fear of others, Uh, you know, other groups, other nationalities, et cetera, et cetera. And what do you think are the number one fears that ze- that that people with xenophobia have, and I'll tell you what I think mine are. It's a okay. fear of resources, and it's a fear of you know jobs or well being being taken from them. As, yep. as as artificial and as you know inaccurate as that can be, that's I what I seem to think are the the fears that xenophobic people have is that resources will be taken away, uh, or taxes will be affected, and jobs will be taken away. What would you say are the, the contributing factors of xenophobia?
1: I would say the two that you have mentioned and people for some reason also, they worry about their own culture and their identity. So they'll see, you know, they'll see certain people coming in. Um, let, let's say, let me give you an example. I often did uh, hijab for a day at the university. And so people would come and try on the hijab. And I, I know for a fact that somebody who is xenophobic, who doesn't like what I do, they would be like, well, you're bringing your culture, you're brainwashing other people to be like you. You want to make everybody wear that thing on their head, too. So it's not, that doesn't come down, of course, to resources or jobs. It's just them you know, being afraid to either become the minority um, for their traditions and habits to get pushed to the side and others get attention. So there is this more cultural aspect, because I do strongly believe that people are afraid that their resources, their tax money is going to support people who don't deserve it, um, or their jobs are going to people um, who are coming from other countries, um, which of course we know time and again that immigrants and newcomers contribute to our economy, make it stronger, better. you know, everything points to that, but at the same time, people are worried just about the culture and they don't want to become the minority.
0: And, and, and you know what, that's amazing point because that one can't be overlooked. And I think mm-hmm. for myself, uh, I've often said like, I don't even know what my culture is exactly because I'm the, you know, mm-hmm. technically I'm the dominant culture. Right. Yeah. So I always implore people who they're like, I don't really know my culture. Go to a country where you look... Oh, hello, forgettable vendetta. Wonderful person. Um, Yes, go to a country where you are the minority and you'll Mm -hmm. find out very quickly what your culture is. I went to Barbados when I was (laughs) like 26. Mm -hmm. Loved it, but just right off the bat, I got in the cab uh, and I always like sitting in the front of cabs because I don't like sitting in the back. I feel like there's a weird... Like I, I like to sit I'm beside the,
1: the guy. I'm the opposite. I'm definitely the opposite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I like to sit and gap. Of course, COVID, you know, now I have to sit in the back. But anyways, uh, I, I sat in the in the car when I sat in there, I was looking at the steering wheel and the cab driver sat up beside me. He's like, Well, where are we driving to? But that's it right there, right? Like different culture, different way of doing things. And I didn't look like anybody else. I, I had a friend who who, you know, that's like that's his culture. And he was showing me around and I was not a tourist and mm-hmm. I was so thankful for it because it helped me understand just how difficult it is for somebody coming here mm-hmm. and they're, they are a stranger in a strange land. Yep. Did you ever, did you ever read that book? It's a picture book without any words. And I think it's called The Arrival. Have you heard of no. this one? No,
1: no, I've not. And oh. where are the pictures? What is
0: so it's it's about somebody who ex, escapes their country for, you know, uh, it, it seems like there's a dictator in power or something. So they escape their country and they come in a new one. But then people are speaking in like weird symbols and stuff. It's a really cool book Interesting. to help kids, because I'm a school teacher or I work in schools, to help them understand... To remove the stigma of the other, because Edward Said talked a lot about othering, mm-hmm. and this idea of we like to exoticize and almost fetishize other cultures. Oh yeah. But but only do it in ways that we like, you know, and it's like. Um, Here's the, here's a good one that you know all all black people are good at basketball like that's that's othering right there exactly. prime prime example or that mm-hmm. people people other me they think like I interview people all over the world and they're like oh you must love hockey and I'm like <laughs> I am the worst hockey player you've ever met yes. right which is yep. cute I mean it's hockey but my point is is that. Yeah, we do that, right? We all
1: cultures do that. I mean, if I were to talk about the yep. Middle East or some of the stuff that I sometimes hear from my parents, people, you know, idolize, for example, Europeans or people with white skin, light hair, blue eyes, and they just idolize them and put them on a pedestal. For example, um, yeah, we do that, and then we put others down and um, to see others beneath us if they have darker skin, and it's just so unfortunate and that's very interesting to hear that there's and I'm glad that there's more children's books um, discussing this and encouraging youth to look beyond their horizons to understand that the world is a very very diverse place because I think growing up I I grew up you know I'm living in a predominantly quite conservative quite white community and so I didn't see people like me growing up books were definitely not like me uh, it's funny because a lot of these things kind of get internalized as you're growing up. And I remember in grade four, there was a teacher who would sometimes teach. Um, one year she would do um, teach about the explorers, Christopher Columbus, all of the uh, great America. Uh, European explorers, and another year, she would teach Indigenous studies and about all the different First Nations groups, so on and so forth. And it was always for some reason amongst you know the students, it would be so amazing if you were in her class the year that she was teaching the explorers. And for some reason, we kind of idolized them um, as as young people, and you know, learning about First Nations or Indigenous cultures was something not as important or as interesting. And so, it's interesting that these sort of ideas get shaped in your mind from a young age, from young students, uh, it's, it's so fascinating um, how much you can influence the way people will think in their adulthood by the way that they are taught as youngsters. And you probably have so much experience with that.
0: Well, I mean, if you think about it, we're all just like, it's, it's like the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly, but he was always a, he was always a caterpillar, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. We're all, we're all still children. We're just extensions of that. You know, I'm a 31 year old child, right? Mm -hmm. But yet we, we learn all these things as we go. And we're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I have to, you know, there's a corporate culture again. I have to nine to five and look like an adult, but then you get on these zoom meetings and you see all these goofy things that are happening. And you're like, "Ah, we're still just, we're still just human.
1: Mm -hmm. And,
0: and maybe that's, that's why I love education for one is that, kids are like they fall over, they get back up, right? Although I'm starting to see in our society, and this is kind of sad, that kids are 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 becoming more and more kind of perfectionists. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's a battle between that, but
1: it is, it uh, is a battle. Yeah.
0: I love kids that make mistakes. Now now you were talking about you you were born in Chicago, you moved to Quinnell which is a small community. And then you Mm -hmm. moved, uh, sorry, Prince George, right?
1: Prince George. Exactly. Yeah. Been here ever since I was seven.
0: Yeah. So again, I, I've never even been to Prince George. What was, what was it like growing up in a community like that and, and, and being a Muslim
1: yeah, that's that's a great question that I like to reflect on a lot, and I've honestly come a long way as an individual, and and we as a community. Uh, I my parents are Syrian, of course, and so we were for a very long time the only Syrian family in the community. Um, though there were some that came and went, we were the only visible one. Uh, I never had a Syrian friend honestly until I met you know some along the way as. Uh, refugees were coming, uh, uh, Syrian refugees were coming to Canada. That was kind of some of my first encounters with Syrians in Canada. So it was a very interesting experience. But growing up as a Muslim in Prince George, it was a strong part of my identity. I think uh, I thought saw myself as Canadian, but I also saw myself actively as a Muslim. We didn't have a mosque for a lot of the time. And I remember growing up, there would be prayers either in a prayer hall uh, or in a basement of a church. And uh, we were very thrilled to finally be able to establish and have a mosque built in 2011. I watched my parents uh, and many people within our small community of a couple hundred uh, work together to fundraise funds. I remember my my parents and I, we would travel and they'd go to big fundraisers to fundraise money to build the mosque. Uh, so that was in 2011. And ever since we've seen the community grow, um, probably I want to say has somewhat doubled since since 2011. And it's, it's beautiful to see the young children and to see people growing up. But I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me growing up personally, which is why I was so passionate about being a role model and setting a good example because there wasn't very many people before me that I could look up to. Uh, I consider myself to some extent a trailblazer within my community. Which is something that's um, very exciting, but also carries a lot of responsibility. Uh, of course, can be very tiring some days. And of course, because I'm leaving my community for law school, sometimes I, I worry and I say, you know, I hope that there will be youth that will continue to carry on and represent the Muslim community within our small community. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my experience growing up Muslim in Prince George. It was always being the odd one out. Uh, but when we would go to the mosque, we would definitely feel a sense of community. That's when you could finally feel who you were and feel your identity and say, you know, I am a Muslim. Mm. But I've been really fortunate over the years. I feel like I've, you know, as an individual, I've become more confident. So I, so I have hosted events. I remember just before COVID, it was beginning of March of last year. We held a Meet Your Muslim Neighbor at the university and hijab for a day. And, and we introduced people to the faith than who we were. And I feel a lot more comfortable talking about who I am as a Muslim, who I am as this, as a, a person, individual, who's Canadian, but of Syrian origin. I feel much more comfortable talking about those things now. Uh, and I hope that young people feel that way as well. But I'm, I'm not sure if I feel this way because I'm just much more confident as an individual within my uh-huh. community or if it's because I feel like it's become somewhat more normal as well for us to talk about who we are and not be afraid of talking about our own race or ethnicity or religion.
0: Wow. I mean, like the, I can only imagine how much resilience, you know, you've developed over the years um, in having to work through this. Mm-hmm. Um, because- Yeah, it's
1: definitely difficult. And, and there are youth that definitely struggle, yes. struggle with their identity. And, and we, we have to support one another when it comes to that.
0: Yeah. Well and, and 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 that's that's such such a wonderful thing that you're able to sort of there is kids that they have each other and they have their families, of course. But like you say, you were the only one growing up. So I imagine you had to, you know, you must be very close with your parents.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. they helped of...
0: you navigate all this,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah. And and the fact that I can speak Arabic is really thanks, especially to my mom, but to both of my parents, because people get surprised and even I'm surprised some days that I can, that I have, you know, strong conversational fluency, despite growing up with very few Arabs around me or having conversations growing up. And so a lot of that was, you know, by watching television shows in Arabic and having conversations with my parents. And so, I'm very, very thankful for that. And not everybody, you know, not all parents can pass on the language to their children. And sometimes it's up to the child as well to be encouraged and to want to learn because not not every child is going to end up taking the language or the culture with them. And I think I was just very passionate about that because I felt it as a very strong part of my identity growing up.
0: Well, and and I think that in society, I mean we seem to all understand Christianity because of, you know, its role in, in getting Western countries to where they are, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of people understand the, the, the the Muslim faith faith, and that again, Muslim is like Christianity includes Catholicism, Protestantism, Anglicanism, all these different sects. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the Muslim faith is the same. It's not just one way of doing it. And I think that, that that can be a bit of a, people who don't know much about it, they might think that, right?
1: Yeah, it's exactly. Like,
0: it's, it's like anything. Now, you you touched a little bit about Islamophobia at the beginning. Have you seen like an increase or a decrease in that? Or is it kind of the same way that it is?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. I, I have to admit, I mean, I've, been particularly a young person for for majority of my life so far and people say once you go out and you work and you see a lot more of corporate culture they said you're going to see a lot more than what you've seen Uh, because of course I I had a regular life go to high school um, and probably started seeing more things once you go to university and you start working and you know you see comments on social media I think now people have really resorted to social media I think to vent or express their anger or you know, of course, to be racist. Uh, and so whether I think that there has been a decrease, it's tough to say until we return in person. And I I'm, I hope that through the Black Lives Matters movement that that we've had and that continues to persist and that, that movement is so important for supporting not just, you know, Black individuals and and ending anti-Black racism, but I think that it's been something positive for all communities of color and all all people people of all backgrounds and uh, I, I'll have to wait until we go in person to see if there has been a change in a shift but I think online I think it's still it's still like it was if I want to say two years ago or mm-hmm. three years ago uh, and I know I spoke in Parliament back in 2019 I spoke particularly about Islamophobia and I know that there were definitely lots of comments afterwards Islamophobic comments after that of course uh, so people like to go online and do their thing. And, um, yeah, like I said, until I can go in the real world and s- see a lot more people, I think people are a lot more subtle. Um, they've, they've learned to be more subtle. Um, but there's of course, people who are very outright will say whatever they want. So
0: Yeah. Well, who I was going to mention uh, a little bit earlier was a guy named Daryl Davis. Have you ever heard of him?
1: No, I have not.
0: He's man, this guy's unreal. He's heavy metal. <laughs> he is a he's a black musician who uh-huh. is down south. And one day he was performing, you know, live, and this guy came up to him and said, Man, you're really good. This like big white guy. And he's like, Oh, thanks, man. He's like, No, man, like you're really good. Like, I didn't know that you could play like that. And the guy's like, What what do you mean by that? And he's like, like he actually was like, What like what do you mean by that? Like well, you know, like like black people or whatever. Turns out this guy was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. This white guy, wow. and he tells him this. He tells Daryl Davis this. He's like, yeah, I, I because he was brainwashed into thinking this. And then Daryl Davis, uh, so so he gave him this white guy gave Daryl Davis his his uniform, you know the wow. hood thing. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm because he and the point is, is that he developed a relationship with this individual that completely destroyed his preconceived notions, his stereotypes of what the black community is. And I think that that's the key for things Mm -hmm. like, you know, Islamophobia and racism and stuff. It's like, well, how many how many people do you know of that group that you seem to know so well?
1: very true very true it's yes usually these sort of interactions that end up happening that change people they have a neighbor that you know perhaps black or muslim or or indian and then they you know they see their kindness or something and they get they have a change of heart and they realize that their preconceptions were of course way further than the truth um and yeah, it's these sort of experiences, I think, that are very, very valuable. And we have to continue to push for open spaces, for dialogue, for interaction. And I hope that once COVID is over, because it's very difficult online, it's very difficult to reach yes. these sort of people They, Some of the, you know, there's people that we will never be able to change the way that they think. They are too isolated um, and, and it's just impossible to reach them. And and it would be a waste of our time to try to interact yes. with them. And, and it could, you know, engage our own safety. But hopefully after COVID, we can have those in, you know, face-to-face interactions because online has been draining and it can be difficult to have some of those dialogues, but I think some of them have been as well, very valuable.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and again, to your point, I mean, anti-racism is, is the idea that there's no such thing as a superior or an inferior culture. It's just, there's different cultures yeah, and different cultures bring different things to the table. Um, and, and the other piece there, too, sort of piggybacking off of that, is this idea that um, what's the difference between tolerance and acceptance? And a friend of mine, brilliant guy, he, he told me that tolerance is the idea that no one's rights or freedom should be impeded upon because of who they are, right? But acceptance is different. Mm-hmm. You can't just. Some people will never accept LGBTQ+, plus, but they have to tolerate them. They can't hurt them. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, fine. Maybe you'll never understand why. Not that it's, you know, it's not their job to explain it to you, but we have to have tolerance in society. People have to be safe and then acceptance comes. But I think when you try to create mandatory acceptance of things or, or which, which its extension can become cancel culture. Mm -hmm. I think it actually creates the people double down on their on their wacky thoughts right so for example if you had somebody who said um oh to be a conservative nowadays is like to be uh, a jewish person in 1939 germany and it's like <laughs> that is in no it's way comparable yeah. right that's yeah. in no way comparable mm-hmm. but why can't we ha- maybe let's have a conversation with this person and try to understand where this is coming from and why they're saying it before we just take them out back and you know, it get rid of them. Yeah. But when we just say, okay, that's it, you're done. You know. Meanwhile, this is an organization that doesn't have a whole lot of uh, multiculturalism at the top end. You know, it's sort of like, are you just doing that just to look good, or what's the goal here? And I think that education versus uh, p- educational measures versus punitive measures will work far better in the long run. But what I do want to say is that it's not it's not a, a Muslims person, uh, LGBTQ plus person, uh, Black person, et cetera, to explain their culture. That's not their job, mm-hmm. right? So if you have uh, a single Black person in your organization, it's not your job to act, like, it's not, excuse me, it's not their job for them to explain the significance of the George Floyd, you know, Derek Chauvin trial. Mhm. Right.
1: Very true. That's
0: that's a that's a job for Google. You should try that, right? And I I just think that that as a society we need to be okay to ask questions, but we should try and do a little bit of homework before we ask those questions.
1: Oh yeah, I absolutely agree with you on all of those points. Yeah, it's so so important for us to be open-minded to be willing to learn from others but i also i probably i guess to some extent i might say i disagree because i I do encourage you know muslims to say you know go out and and share your thoughts with people because some people you know just don't know um you know in a system where you know we know all the main Christian holidays, Christmas, Easter, whatever. It's up to us as a Muslim community to make sure that people know what Eid is, that we that we tell people about it, that we aren't ashamed, and that we push for self for our own celebrations, for example, so that others are at least aware. Because I'm I'm not going to expect Uh, you know my my white friend to to, to know you know my one of my friends you know in university to know about all of my faith um i would expect her at least to have at the very least respect um and like you said hopefully acceptance but i think that as an individual it's my job to tell them about you know my culture or my religion but i think where where we don't need to justify or educate others is when it comes to like race um, those things don't require any sort of explanation. I don't need to, exp- you know, exp- you know a, a black individual doesn't need to explain themselves or educate, there's, there's nothing that they need to educate others. That's, the, you know, as, as somebody from the Middle East, as an Arab, I don't need to educate others about my, my race or my ethnicity, um, because those are just things that we are born with and we have to learn to understand, we have to be willing to learn. But when it comes to cultures and things like that, religions, there's a lot out there, um, and sometimes it's nice to come to, to come to the source, I think, with a lot of those things, and that's where a lot of misconceptions I think happen when it comes to culture and religion, those sort of things. I think there's there's a lot of false information out there, mm-hmm. and it's nice to just come back to the source. And so I do encourage um my you know, my Muslim brothers and sisters who do feel comfortable to share, to share their experiences, to help educate others. Um because that's, that's the only way that we can really support one another. Support, you know, support people who have the wrong type of thinking. And, and we all know the Facebook algorithm filters things to the things that we want to see. Um, and so it's nice to often see a different perspective.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know what? That's Thank you for not agreeing with me on everything. <laughs> I, I love that. Maybe
1: just the one thing. Except no, but, everything else, Robert.
0: <laughs> but, but, but that's a good point because... Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I could say to somebody, ask me anything, but I can't answer, like, I can't answer something that I'm mm-hmm. not a direct member. Of. Like, I know about, right. you know, Rumi, the, the poet Rumi, and, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't practice the Muslim faith. So I'm not, I'm not the person that one should ask on, on that, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, but I think that that's a great, a great sort of segue into, you know, this idea of how do we create healthy conversations for people who want to know things,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, and, and as long as the emphasis is on, on education and understanding, my, my belief is that only good can come from it. And, and the, uh, the other thing is that we might ask questions that are like, you know, I know that this is a really dumb question, but well, thank you for asking it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 Mm -hmm. and by that, by that being answered, you know, and, it it can, can kind of put a person at ease but again it's like mm-hmm. let's make sure that who's answering these questions like you say is somebody who's they have that That's they some have knowledge
1: that right yeah. experience yeah. Um, you know I, I i like a moderation as much as as possible so when we're engaging in these dialogues you don't, you don't want to be aggressive you don't want to uh, you know argue with individuals, you know, we want to be as peaceful as possible when we're having these sort of interactions and conversations. Of course, any sort of discrimination, racism, hate speech, um, homophobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia, whatever, anti-Semitism, anti-Asian hate, I can list them all, but none of those sorts of things should ever be tolerated or accepted in those sorts of conversations. Um, But... Still, it's you know, our job as people who want to educate and have understanding to come from a place of also understanding that, you know, these individuals may have, you know, been taught to think this way for decades. And they may have grown up in a very white community. They've never seen a person of color. Um, and so they're having this, you know, this first interaction. And so we have to be patient with them. Of course, um, and but we expect, of course, the same. We expect respect um, and that sort of thing. So, it's it's really difficult to navigate, and sometimes we just have to be patient. and And each individual that I may interact with or have a conversation with, I know one one woman. She just she couldn't wrap her head around why I wear the hijab. She just she just she could not accept that a woman has to cover her hair. And I under you know. I explained to her, I did my job to explain why I wear the hijab and she can go on her way as long as she doesn't try to intrude on, you know, my freedom of expression to wear whatever I like, uh, but I've done my job and it's up to her in the end, whether she, you know, wants to accept what I practice and, and do. So, yeah.
0: Well, and, 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 the other thing is, um, here I go on my weird little anecdotes, <laughs> but but for that's example, great. Pamela, Pamela Anderson was against a seal hunt, right? And was like, they're killing seals. And, and, and what was happening is the Inuit, that's what they do, that's part of their way of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because it's very cold up there, it's very difficult to grow crops. So they they live off of seals. And Pamela Anderson was saying, you know, like, how could they do this? So what I'm getting at here is there was some virtue signaling saying that. This way is the right way. And I think for something like the hijab, uh, for for say Westerners, is there, they, they think they're trying to understand something through their lens, not through the person whose culture that is, who's participating in that action, their lens. They they may see, for example, may think that, oh, they have to do that. They don't have a choice. And that's that's not true. I mean, you talk to, you know, uh, people who wear the hijab, what they say, it's like, no, I, I choose to wear this. What, what is this? Now, here's my silly question, but what is the, what is the significance of the hijab? My understanding is it's, it, in some cultures, I think the turban in the Sikh culture kind of keeps sin away or something like that, or, or bad energy away. What's yeah, it's, so- it's, it's
1: not a silly question at all. I, it's a very legitimate question, and I encourage people to always ask me. I, I've, I know I've had conversations uh, with uh, with Sikhs who wear the turban as well. It was funny because when I held hijab for a day last year, it was my table with all the hijabs and, and the young woman who were helping me. And just across from us on the other side of the hall were um, a whole bunch of, of Sikh individuals who were running a, um, a turban table and encouraging people to put on the turban. And so we had you know very wonderful exchange between each others and, and conversations, and we share a lot of commonalities. But for the hijab itself. Uh, If you ask each woman, they will give you probably a slightly different response, but more of the greater, broader picture. It's a symbol of modesty. Um, It's obedience to God as a woman. Uh, Yeah, mostly just very much modesty and um, really woman being in control of who gets to see their beauty, who gets to see their bodies. Uh, And like I said, modesty, respect for women so that women aren't judged by the way that they look. Uh, it's, it's, you know, people often argue with me about this, but I, I feel very strongly, uh, when it comes to wearing the hijab and controlling who gets to see my, my, you know, my body or my beauty, because social media has really shaped how women are supposed to look, how they're supposed to appear. Uh, they're often, you know, if you were to watch any TV show, honestly, and you see that the way that women are portrayed or how they're, their appearance is supposed to give them some sort of additional power. Um, and, and I have nothing against women who choose to, um, to show their bodies and who like to celebrate their beauty. I have nothing against that. What I am absolutely against is corporate culture or the media. Uh, advertising that uses women's body so negatively to influence how others see women, uh, how others want to shape how women are supposed to look or supposed to dress. I know a lot of, a lot of young women struggle with body image and how they're supposed to look and and how, how, you know, models and how it just influences them. And I'm, I'm like totally against that. We don't, we don't see the same thing when it comes to men. We, we just don't. And so, uh, yeah I just have this personal frustration, I guess um, when it comes to how women are portrayed everywhere, whether it's in advertising or in the media and i and I personally believe um, that my hijab gives me that power to choose and dictate how people see me, and I don't have to live up to a certain standard
0: i'm 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 very glad I asked that question. <laughs>
1: i hope that i hope that I hope that it gives you some clarity I hope my answer was clear i
0: I, 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 I mean after that answer I don't see why I don't see how anyone could you know and I, I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's how about that for a value statement I don't see yeah. how anybody couldn't understand that like that's yeah but anyways I really don't I mean that makes perfect sense and you're you're absolutely right that we live in a in a society that there's there's a lot of pressure on men too, actually, because Mm -hmm. I I say this sometimes, but I had an eating disorder when I was like 14, 15,
1: Mm -hmm. because
0: I looked at, at, you know, all the people in Hollywood, and they're all ripped and jacked. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, if I shave my chest, I should look like that. And uh, I'm I'm joking, but, but there's a lot of pressure on young people Mm -hmm. to look and act in certain ways that, like you say, go against, I think their, their virtues, their values.
1: Yeah. Right? And it ruins, I mean, their happiness. So there's a lot of people who consumed, consumed in just thinking about, you know, do I look good enough? Do I look like that person? It's like, well, you know, we, we have to have this understanding, first of all, that a lot of what we see is either filters or Photoshop and, and it's just a lot, of, a lot of pressure and people think that they have to look a certain way to be approved of. And it's like, no, you should look the way that you want to, to look. And we need to stop putting pressure on people, whether it's a woman or, or men or girls or boys um, or people who don't associate themselves with, with either um, gender, of course, to be able to express themselves in the way that they feel most comfortable.
0: Yeah I, and and I'm glad you brought up the people who don't see themselves as as either gender because mm-hmm. for for me that's that's always one that I kind of you know it's mine to struggle with it's not it's yeah. not for anybody else to you know what I mean adjust mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but 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 that, but that's a good point is that that again gender is something that is kind of um what's the word that I'm looking for uh, uh, uh not assimilated but um What's it called when, when something is, it just, gender is something that can one could easily argue is indoctrinated in us
1: right. mm-hmm. by
0: the messages of society, mm-hmm. right? Yes, you're born, you know, a pers- an individual can be born with certain biological parts, mm-hmm. but the roles associated to those parts that they take on can be of indoctrination. And I totally get mm-hmm. that. You, you just mm-hmm. have to go to Toys R Us.
1: To right. understand that right yeah because I, yeah, I have exactly. a 20 month
0: old daughter and she loves cars mm-hmm. you know and it's like keep loving cars kid like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when you like what you want to like because that's what makes you awesome
1: yeah exactly and i think yeah gender stereotypes i think is a is definitely an issue and and it affects you know a lot of people who see okay i, I am you know i choose let's say to identify as a woman people you know and even this is an issue with people back home and they say you know you're a woman you have to act a certain way or you need to be a certain way or you're a woman you need to stay home so yeah we have to be yeah very very careful and and like i know we were having conversation about individual versus community and when it comes to these things let the individual um decide Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and, and 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 let it not be at the um the sacrifice of their community. Right. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: mm-hmm. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that's causes people to cut off connections or. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To, to keep your identity, right. Which to me, identity, I'm, I'm associating that to the community, right. To keep mm-hmm. your community identity as well as your individual identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what, uh, that's balance in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wow, I'm, thank you for bringing that up. Now, now <laughs> the last bit, and I can't believe we're already at an hour here.
1: Yeah, it's been a great, kind of, great conversation. I yeah, yeah, wow.
0: But you, but you wanted to speak
1: about the Middle East, and
0: I know that we would need many more hours to speak about this. But this is something that you're incredibly passionate about, and and one that I'm passionate about in terms of um, re rethinking how we think the other, right? Edward mm-hmm. Said talked about this extensively. And, you know, for example, the term third world country, what does that mean? I would, I would ask my teacher, well, what's a second world country? <laughs> and uh, Are yeah,
1: second world countries? Do we, we don't, I've never used that term or, or seen it hurt. Is there second yeah. world country? Well,
0: I, well, and, and, and I would ask that and they would be like, uh, Canada, I anyway, like they wouldn't <laughs> have really an answer.
1: Yeah, they don't so, know.
0: Which, which tells you how problematic the term is on the get-go, but mm-hmm. the idea that developing countries and developed countries, how did that country become developed? Now, obviously, I know where that comes from, um, but I'm hoping that you can kind of touch on, you know, the Middle East and why you're so passionate about that, that subject.
1: Yeah, just a touch. I... In addition to my economics degree, I have a minor in international studies. I love international studies, learning about how international systems work, global governance systems. Uh, I strongly see myself as a global citizen and I'm I'm fortunate of course to identify as American, Canadian and on top of that, Syrian. It's, It's a beautiful part of my identity. And I'm so passionate probably about the Middle East. I became more passionate about the Middle East as I saw of course the uprisings occurring in Syria. Like I said before, I am Syrian in origin, and seeing people fighting for their freedom, fighting against a dictator, uh, it was a really beautiful thing. And I know that there are people who continue to fight, um, and a lot of people have been unfortunately displaced, all because of a dictator who doesn't want to, um, you know, doesn't want to Uh, resign doesn't doesn't want doesn't want to hold a proper election doesn't want to have an opposition uh it's yeah it's so frustrating and so you really have to understand i think the middle east as a whole and Mm. i guess all regions of the world that have ever been colonized and understand that those regions are nothing like they are nothing like what they are today the entire middle east there were no there was nothing like a country or borders I mean, before that, there was the Ottoman Empire, but that was was huge. Um, And people didn't really, I mean, if you, and I I know I said this earlier, but if you went to the borders of all the countries in the Middle East, you know, whether you were on the border of Syria and Iraq, you'll realize that people speak very, very similar accents on the borders because those borders just weren't whenever there was just people. People were, whether they were in tribes or villages or neighborhoods. And so... Of course, when we, we saw colonialism in, you know, between World War One and World War II, and then finally a lot of those borders were drawn out, and eventually those states claimed independence. I think that the Middle East, after that, was changed forever. I don't think that it, yeah, I always wonder what would have happened if there was no colonialism in the Middle East. What would it look like? Um, because yeah the entire region was just one people saw themselves I know that they called the reason region especially Palestine Syria um, yeah that was just entire region from Iraq everywhere it was just they called them Bilad Sham and um, and it was people saw themselves as part of that people lived in their own villages and then came along the nation state and I think that it's been problematic. We've seen. I, I. I don't. I don't know if the region was ready for centralized power, like a president. And then, of course, these presidents get supported by external or Western powers, and they just continue to gain so much influence and power over their people. They turn into autocracies and dictatorships, uh, and so many, so many issues um, that continue to persist because of, I think, colonialism. And of course, there's issues in the region, there's always issues wherever you go. But I think colonialism has really exacerbated those long-standing problems. And I I honestly, I don't think that Western nations or the United States is very serious about supporting democracy anywhere outside of the West. I don't think that it's very serious about supporting countries in, in reaching democracies. I think that Sometimes the West oh. thrives off of um, these sorts of powers because they can either manipulate them or get what they want. Um, they can take control of, of oil, whatever whatever resources, whatever they're there for. And so, yeah, it can be very frustrating. And then on top of that, of course, we've seen the things that have been occurring in, in Palestine, Israel, and the the displacement of people that continues to persist. And I continue to be surprised that there are people that will continue to remain silent in the wake of the continued displacement and mistreatment of the Palestinian people from, from their land. It's, it's frustrating.
0: Well, and yeah, What, what, like, like you said, I mean, borders are, like that's the purest form of an idea of a human mm-hmm. idea, right? Mm-hmm. Because you go to space, and you can't, you like you don't see the 49th parallel. Although, although when you know when you actually can kind of see borders uh, from spaces at nighttime because you see the mm-hmm. lights. True, but 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 the reason why you see that is because one particular region is more disenfranchised than the other region, mm-hmm. and again that goes back to who who who's influencing who and, you know, shareholders and things like that.
1: Exactly. Very true.
0: And, and, and I think it's, is it Ruard Kipling, Richard Kipling? He wrote the Jungle Book, but he also talked about Mm -hmm. the white man's burden. And uh, this idea of, you know, you need to go to these countries and you need to teach them the Christian values and take them from their human savagery words to that effect. and, like, like in all things, the road to hell is, is paved in misdirections. It's good <laughs> intentions, is the saying. But, but the idea that maybe he was sincere and earnest when he said this, but the end result was, it, it has been catastrophic. It's, con- mm-hmm. it's continued to de- destabilize that region, and like you've said, I mean, think about the Pakistan India border. And I think it was like 50s oh, the yeah. when they drew that through. They. They obviously, whoever drew this line, they didn't do their homework, nor did they care. Obviously, no, that they were separating, and the same thing happened in Canada and America, uh, mm-hmm. like the Blackfoot uh, nation. It went yeah. the 49th parallel, went right through them. So families were literally separated. And when they would cross the border, they'd say, Okay, what's your nationality? Well, oh, I'm, I'm Blackfoot, and they're like, what are you Canadian or are you American? I'm mm-hmm. Blackfoot, right? And, anyways, it's just like you say these borders are. Like, but but how do you what do you do now, right? It's like, do you get yeah. rid of them or? Um, somebody actually answered a question that I asked uh, beforehand. Forgettable vendetta, it's <laughs> wonderful. This person helps me out a lot. So, uh, they shared that the first world included the United States and his capitalist allies. And the second world was the communist Soviet Union and its Eastern European allies. Right. So there you go. There's a, there's a, a, wow. a judgment statement by making it That's first, very second, helpful. third, and then third world was all the other countries that were not actively aligned on either side. So these were often impoverished former European colonies. There you go.
1: Very helpful. Yeah, we try we try to stay away from those words in academia mm-hmm. because we know we try to use develop, developing. But I think. It's best just to state say the regions that you're talking about, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: What is the name of the country that you're talking about? <laughs> exactly. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you're right; these are value statements, and you know, if you go to some of these, well, for example, I think Denmark is, which is a developed country, but anyways, mm-hmm. is the happiest country in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. I've heard so that. What,
0: what What does that mean? Does that mean that it has the lowest deaths to mental
1: illness? Right. Yeah, no idea. This could be some arbitrary happiness measure survey. I yeah.
0: Right. So so what I'm saying mm-hmm. is is developed is developed so great. Yeah, right. Like there's these there's these virtue and value statements associated to mm-hmm. the economic
1: well being characteristics yeah,
0: okay. of, a, mm-hmm. of a of a nation. Right. Mm-hmm. so because because i know that in um a friend of mine he he traveled iraq and he said yeah man i would i would talk until like 3 a.m about some of them, you know people in iraq these communities and it was like i was family meaning that the um we talk about what is it southern mannerisms or whatever anyways oh, the, what? the the mannerisms of iraq like in the south like like southern united states like Oh, he's got that that southern like, hospitality. I southern see, hospitality. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was in Iraq. He was saying how how hospitable the people were there. Uh, he said that he smoked maybe three packs of cigarettes in the night, um, but uh, again, like that's not like characteristic of all Iraqi mm-hmm. people. But the fact is, is that he felt more welcome there than he did in other places in the world.
1: Yeah, and maybe that's happened. something that
0: we can. We could we can pull from it, right? Like
1: <laughs> Yeah, that sense of that sense of community. Cause I know we were talking earlier about, you know, individual versus the community. What are the building blocks of society? And of course I'm an individual who believes strongly in family and community. And we have to find that balance, uh, especially I think here in Western society is becoming a lot more individualistic and there are pros, of course, to supporting the rights of the individual, that there, of course, has to be a balance with the rights of the family and community and society and looking out for the well-being of others as well. And I know you brought up the example, you know, of Middle Eastern culture, trying to be very hospitable, support one another. People, you know, if you if you give a container container, they say that you a container of food. There's this idea that you should never return it to the owner without it being full of. Something as well as a gift of return, and it's something very beautiful. But of course, there always has to be a balance because sometimes you know people will take advantage of this. They're like, "You're my family member. You need to work for me for free, or we're from the same community. Therefore, you need to provide me services for free or do something for me as a favor." And this is like, no. We also have to respect that people have individual rights. Um, they have to be respected, um, and so we have to find that balance. And I don't think there's any perfect country in the world, but I think that at least here at home, we're drifting away from that uh, importance of community and family and society and supporting one another sometimes. But I know that during COVID, many of us have tried to come together to support one another. And it's been a time where we realize we cannot live alone. We cannot live as individuals and survive on our own.
0: We are societal creatures and we are enriched when we have we are enriched by diversity. That's what mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's what I truly believe. That it makes us it makes us stronger, not weaker. Mm-hmm. That being said, in in the in the adjustment period of that, it can make it seem oh man, it was said so beautifully in this book I recently read, but um it can seem like oppression to change can seem like oppression to the privileged. Because it's not what they're used to, something like that. I, I'll, I'll try and send you the word, but it was from this book called uh, "Vibrate Higher." Um, oh. yeah, amazing. Never heard of by, uh, it. Talib uh, he's a hip hop artist, amazing guy. But anyways, he was saying that 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 when these changes happen, it can seem like the privileged elite classes are being oppressed. When really, it's just, it's it's just the 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 the, the proliferation of equity. Mm -hmm. equality
1: yeah i'm so big on equity i think like equality we've kind of we've come a long way the discussion used to be more about equality we've got to be equal but we're realizing that we're all starting from different um starting points right i mean there's some but there are some people and groups that are already so far ahead others that are so so far back and so equality just doesn't help individuals and communities in those circumstances. And we have got to look at equity. And I think that's one way that I hope to approach everything, whether it's the law or supporting other people or looking at politics, equity, uh, diversity, listening to everybody, having everybody at the table is so important.
0: So you, you mentioned, and um, I'm, I'm going to have to have you back on because, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this has been a great chat. And hopefully it'll be at a time when my daughter hasn't uh, woken me up at four thirty a.m. in the morning, where I'm kind of like uh, I'm drinking iced coffee at five seventeen <laughs> p.m. So, anyways, um,
1: oh, thank you, you for having me, Robert. Really, it was it's been a great discussion.
0: It, it 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 has been it has been a a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much. Now now last question for you though. You were born in America, and you said <laughs> that you'd like to be the president of, of the United States. <laughs> Is that still is that still on the horizon?
1: No, I, I don't think so. I have
0: <laughs> what about prime I, minister?
1: I people often tell that to me and I they say, What about party leader? And I say, I don't speak French, and I don't plan to speak French either. Though I did take it up to grade twelve, so I could I could pick it up one day, but I am so passionate about helping people and um, I'm a person. i I'm an individual who strongly believes that being in a position of power doesn't always mean that you can always change things as much as you think you can. Now, of course, being president, there's a lot of things in your control. Um, being a prime minister so many things that are within your control but there's an entire system ahead of you that you have to change and even a four-year term or five-year term or even eight year term or even longer would just never be enough to do probably all the things that need to be changed and there's always bureaucracy that gets in the way and I I, we know people within certain parties that try to rise up who try to change things and then they get silenced and so I, i passionately believe you know I'd like to get perhaps into politics one day but I don't want to make it my life. I'm I I strongly believe that I can have an impact as an individual helping people and I think I'm I'm looking very forward to being a lawyer and being able to have that freedom. You know, I don't want to be tied down by bureaucracy or by politics to support people who really need it, to be a voice to speak uh, what I want and not f- not feel that I have to abide by party norms, um, or, or something that, that could, you know, potentially silence me. Um, I am an individual and I have supported the Greens. Um, I am a B.C. Greens member as well as a federal Greens member, and I know that they've given me a lot of the freedom to speak on issues as I wish, which is something that I absolutely um, enjoy, having the freedom to talk on the issues that I'm passionate about. They don't always necessarily have to align um, with everything that the party believes, but it's given me that freedom where I can speak and speak from my experience, of course, Mm -hmm. to to better um, this country for everybody.
0: Wonderful. Well, you have my vote. Wherever you go, you you just let me know. And uh,
1: <laughs> thank you, Robert. No, I really appreciate that.
0: Well, Lila, I mean, thank you, thank you so much for for coming on the show and uh, and and sharing with us these issues and it, in a way that you know it's approachable for 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 myself because. I don't know a whole lot about these things and I, I appreciate your insight. So thank you so much. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about <laughs> law and Definitely. how that can change society. Right. I mean, in terms of the things that you speak about social justice, I know, I, I know you're going to go places. So if you don't mind <gasps> my so asking.
1: Much, Robert. Yes, go yeah, ahead. Cause,
0: cause, boy, and first of all, you said that, you know, you want to make an impact. You already have made an impact. You're going to continue <laughs> to God. make an impact and I'm excited by it. So My question is, how how old are you? If you don't mind
1: answering, I I am twenty two. Yeah, so twenty. I (laughs) that
0: gives me such encouragement and hope because when I was twenty two, I was a lost soul. So oh no,
1: yes you can. Yes, I. Um yeah, don't underestimate the the power that youth can have, but you can always you know turn your life around at any point in time. you just have to have the willpower, however old or young you are. so I yeah.
0: what a what a beautiful message. you can make <laughs> an impact at any time. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Robert. It's been such a pleasure. You're an amazing interview and and we had such fruitful discussions. so thank you.
0: well I, I I look forward to having you on again soon. And thank you forgettable vendetta for uh Mm -hmm. helping us with the uh some of the information there he helped this person helped me the other day with um i i couldn't remember isaac newton's first name and i was like (laughs) that newton guy and then he (laughs) messaged isaac i'm like oh you're great okay so thank you very much have a wonderful day
1: you as well thank you
0: Once again, that was Lala Masoor sharing with us her passions, her work, her knowledge on on Muslim culture, social justice, uh, the the importance of education versus cancel culture. So many wonderful things. And and, and the one that's sticking out to me right now is our conversation around xenophobia and why people, why people are afraid of, of the other or of others. And I had mentioned that uh, maybe it's because of jobs, because of resources. They're afraid that it's going to affect them financially. And then Lila shared uh, culturally as well, that they're afraid that their culture is under threat. I recently finished a book by Talib Qali, uh Vibrate Higher, and in it, he says that um, while he identifies these are in his words. It's in his book, he says, when you are used to privilege, Equality feels like oppression And I thought that that's an interesting point is that what we're seeing is is the aim to hopefully make everyone as close to being equal or have the same opportunity as possible and When we're not used to seeing that we can think that that our rights our liberties our privileges are being uh, challenged or oppressed and the fact of the matter is that we're, we're trying to bring everybody up to the same standard. So I just thought that those words were, were so uh, obvious. And I think that it's a message that, that we need to, to really consider for some of us who, who think that white privilege is, is like an offensive term or something. It's not meant to be, it's, it's meant to tell you that you have opportunities that not everybody has. And hopefully you can do something positive with them to make the world around you a better place. And Lila is such a powerful example of an individual who, you know, despite whatever odds or or barriers that, that she could, she could name or list, she chooses to make her world a better place and to, to encourage and, and bring up those around her. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, we are on Patreon. If you'd like to support us, I'm probably wrong about everything for as low as a dollar a month. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant and I'm probably wrong. About everything.